Welcome to a special edition of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lust and joined this week by Matt Timpanic, our resident district attorney. What's up, Matt? How you doing, Dan? So we are going to spend this episode talking about one topic, and that is Deshaun Watson. Matt, you and I have been speaking this whole week kind of on and off. As our listeners of this podcast know, you are a former prosecutor. You approach these criminal cases from a very unique lens with your sports mind and obviously your prosecution background. The Watson case, we'll say cases, civil case and criminal case, which now no longer exists, but you're probably a unique guy to talk to both. So I'm going to give it to you. And I I certainly, I think there's a lot to unpack. We're going to unpack what we thought leading into Friday's grand jury. We're going to talk about the fallout and kind of where we go from here. Matt, before I give it to you, let me just remind everyone that's not on social media. The news coming out is that there are no criminal charges assessed to Deshaun Watson. So, you know, we'll get into it. There's possible some scenarios where he still could get hit with criminal charges. It's not all of these women were presented to the grand jury, not all these criminal complaints, you know, not all these women filed criminal complaints, but we'll talk about it. But by and large, I think the general understanding here is that Deshaun Watson will not be charged criminally for any of these offenses relating to any incidents of these 22 uh, civil cases. So that's the big picture, right? Um, and Matt, I'm going to give it to you now. You know, give me your, your high level thoughts on this, then we'll get into the nuances. As people saw, this is sometimes how the legal process ends. It ends with a no true bill. So what happened in this case was back in August, to back it up, uh, Deshaun Watson was being investigated by the Harris County District Attorney's Office. Jonah Stallings, who is the head of the Sex Crimes and Human Trafficking Unit, sent out subpoenas to these victims to be able to speak to them. That is a normal part of the process. When I was a former district attorney, I would send out subpoenas to victims in alleged cases, and I would find out what they have to say, what evidence they have to figure out whether or not charges come forward. That's a normal part of the process. Then in October, I think we got word that they were sending out search warrants to Cash App, Venmo, all these different social media sites where Deshaun Watson potentially paid for these massages that ended up allegedly being something else, according to the civil complaints. So it brings us to what we have here, the criminal case. In the state of Texas, felonies must be charged by grand juries. That is the reason you would use a grand jury. If these were just misdemeanor charges, a reasonable common sense would believe that the district attorney's office could have just charged them themselves using information as a charging doc. However, they presented the case of eight, I think nine of the victims, the 10th, I believe they just determined wasn't actually sufficient evidence to move forward with the case. All of those cases were declined by the grand jury. However, there was a report yesterday from the New York Times that only one of those alleged victims was actually presented to the grand jury which lends the question, why was, if there are nine victims and nine cases you sought for potential cases, why did you only present one? I heard reports that they introduced the videotaped interviews of most of these women, which is good, but the problem is, is unless they are actually done by the prosecutor doing the case, you're not gonna be able to elicit the uh, the correct questions that you would need to be able to find out whether or not charges are warranted. So. I think that what you have in this case was the district attorney, the most rational and the most reasonable one to believe, the district attorney didn't believe that their case was a strong enough to warrant charges. But instead of declining the cases outright, which is absolutely within their right, they submitted the case to the grand jury and allowed them to decline their case for them. Why would you do that? The thinking being is that when, once it happens, you could hide behind the grand jury proceeding. It's like, 
we didn't decline the case. They did. It's not on us. And all they did after it happened, they released a one paragraph statement. Let's read that statement. I think I think that's kind of important and, and we'll get into it. it says this is a quote from the Harris County District Attorney's Office. After a Harris County grand jury was presented all the evidence and had the opportunity to hear from all witnesses, grand jurors declined to indict Deshaun Watson. Grand jury proceedings are secret by law, so no information related to, to their inquiry may be disclosed, said Dane Schiller, spokesman for the Harris County District Attorney's Office. So, Matt, you and I had an interesting conversation yesterday. Grand jury proceedings are supposed to be secret. Now, there seems to be some mixed messaging here. Do you think the Harris County DA's office could, could have given us more in that particular statement, right? Do you think there's, there's more they could have offered and still keep the actual proceedings secret? They could have, but they didn't want to. The whole, what I think actually happened is they determined they didn't have sufficient evidence. And instead of just declining the case themselves and saying back in January or February, whenever, we reviewed the case, we've spoken to the victims, we reviewed all other corroborating evidence, we decided not to move forward with charges in the case. And that's the end of it. But instead, as you know, the district attorney is a politician. So instead of actually doing what is probably the right thing and what would have been helpful for the grand jury so their time wasn't wasted, the victims. So because when you're subpoenaed, you actually have to show up. So they had eight women show up sitting in the waiting room who didn't even testify. So and for this is a day long thing. And even from Watson's perspective, this has been hanging over him for a long time. And all you intended to do was you knew there wasn't enough anyway. And you just allowed the grand jury to basically do your dirty work for you. Let's unpack it now. So that that's, you know, kind of where we got. Here's the big thing that I want people to focus on here. The Harris County District Attorney statement says, quote, had the opportunity here from all witnesses. Now, Matt, you mentioned this report from The New York Times. You know, Tony Busby said it early this week that eight of his clients, I think, you know, and I, I've seen some little mixed messaging, but I think 10 women in total filed criminal complaints out of 22 women that have filed civil lawsuits. And for those that are coming in new to this case, Tony Busby is the attorney that represents all 22 of the uh, women in the civil cases. So of those 22, 10 filed criminal complaints. And then per Tony Busby, of those 10 that filed criminal complaints, only eight were subpoenaed to the grand jury, which Matt, you and I were talking, you know, you and I spoke a lot this week. I think to you and I, that may be signaled, hey, the prosecutor is picking the eight best and they're going to move forward. There is some semblance like, hey, let's pick the ones that we really want here. We're not going to mail this in. We're not going to bring in one. We're not going to bring in all 10 and get lazy and just have everybody. We're going to pick the eight ones that we think are the best. Now, you know, there's mixed messaging here. Did they hear the video statements put on by the women or did they hear directly from the women involved? There's something that doesn't necessarily make sense. And I've had a couple, you know, I know, Matt, you're a former prosecutor. We've had some current prosecutors drop in my DMs and replies and say, that wasn't really that normal. Why subpoena eight women and only have one testify? And why put out a statement that makes it seem like you heard from all of the women when you maybe heard videos of them? It's it's different. It's it's very, very different. So I think we had boiled this down to two things. And I and you and I were, I think, trying to get out there saying, listen, everybody in football media is very quick to say, if this goes well, there's a ton of clarity. If this goes well, there's going to be a trade, which we I want to get into on this podcast. But I think the other part of that was, hey, like, let's everybody pump the brakes a little bit. Sure, it could go well. But there's also a world, Matt, as you pointed out, where we left yesterday, or we left Friday, depending on when you're listening to this, as eight 
felonies, right? Eight misdemeanors. There was certainly a world where that could happen. And let's, let's, you know, as our sports fans here, you enter the grand jury process. And if you really want to get an indictment, if you really want to do it, it's hard to lose this, right? It's hard to lose in that kind of form because you, you exercise so much control. So it's not necessarily like, you know, the ham sandwich, like a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. It's because the prosecutor typically exerts so much control over the proceedings. It's not that it's easy, but if you really want to get an indictment, you can. So that's, that's maybe the shock. It's not necessarily that Deshaun Watson left without any type of crimes being charged. It's that maybe the grand, you know, that the prosecutor's office didn't put their best foot forward. Another part of this we'll get into. That doesn't necessarily speak to the truth of the allegations. It just speaks to how the evidence, the evidence involved and how the evidence was presented. So I think that's maybe the biggest shock here that the prosecutor either didn't put their best forward or didn't have enough evidence to put this best foot forward because for one year, They've had this case and they could have said at any point, we're electing not to pursue criminal charges like they did in the Trevor Bauer case, which we've talked about. So I think that's the biggest shock. I do. I think the shock that they took this to the grand jury and then didn't go right and didn't have enough to go full throttle. I think that's the the biggest reading. And it doesn't mean right. I'm not I'm not pulling an Adam Schefter here. I'm not speaking about the truth of the allegations. I'm speaking about the fact that they didn't need to go to the grand jury. And I think you and I fairly read as hey, if you're going to go to the grand jury, you're not going to go to the grand jury just to get embarrassed and look bad. But I, I, I think that's what they did, Matt. I absolutely think that's what happened. Because like you said, you have what I actually think happened is you, you saw videotaped statements of these victims before the grand jury. I think you saw all of them together and like, hey, what do you think about this victim statement and that victim and that victim? Because the thinking being is that a grand jury is like, okay, this is a interview. I don't know if it was with law enforcement or if it was with the prosecution, because with law enforcement, they're not going to be asking questions to make a case on a specific case, like go through the elements of sexual assault in the state of Texas. They're going to ask questions like, all right, what happened here? What evidence do you have of this? That's not what you want to hear. And a grand jury is going to be looking at them like, why are we seeing a videotape as opposed to hearing from the actual victims? Remember, in grand jury proceedings, hearsay is admissible. Normally, those videos, videotapes would not be admissible at a trial, but for a former testimony situation where the individual is dead or the prior individual, the opposing counsel had an opportunity to depose them prior to the incident in question. So, it, it lends the question, it's like, is that really the best case you have, one victim in some videotape? No, it's absolutely not. And did you do all of this at the end of it? Because I, I got reports from people in Houston telling me that they were only putting forward misdemeanors of, to a grand jury, which is shocking to me because you don't need to go to a grand jury for misdemeanors. You can literally just charge it with an information, which I did 5,000 times when I was a prosecutor. But, but that's a good indication, Matt, of the politics involved here. And let's unpack this, right? So this wouldn't be the first time in the history of the country where there was some interesting politics going involved here. And the politics, potentially, right? You have in Houston, and I was on a, um, a show that you and I have both been on, Sports Map Radar, earlier today. And I was explaining, like, what just happened to Deshaun Watson? And, you know, it's obviously a sports show as much as it's a legal show. Deshaun Watson went from being an untouchable asset to maybe the most coveted asset in the entire NFL because of what happened in one day. So 
That's number one, right? Do you want to be the district attorney that hurt the home team town's asset by, you know, getting this guy indicted or, or by going to the, you know, and presenting and getting him hit with the misdemeanor. So the way this was done was almost kind of a hands-off, right? We're going to kind of, you know, go through the motions. If he gets indicted, he gets indicted, but it's not because we pushed too hard. It's because the evidence was, you know, that strong. So that's number one, but it wouldn't be the first time in the history of our country, right? Deshaun Watson is probably a pretty connected guy in Houston. We know that Rusty Harden is his attorney. Rusty Harden, the whole time in this case, from day one, he has said, we welcome the grand jury. We want it. We love it. And Matt, you and I were sitting back. and I'm like, I don't know who in their right mind would, would love for their client to go to the grand jury. It doesn't make any sense because, right, and I, I, I'm happy to, to own this. I said the odds of getting an indictment in this case are probably, you know, if you want to play the money line, it's probably like minus 200. You know, if you went into the procedure from everything we know, they've worked this case up for a year. They subpoenaed eight people, right? They, they've been, you know, sending out electric, you know, electronic subpoenas for different documents. I'm like, probably they're going to get it here. This has to be seen, right, as a massive win for Rusty Harden, who the whole time, maybe he was playing a poker face. We invite the grand jury. And I think he kind of had to say that for optics. But he comes out looking like a magician, like he pulled a rabbit out of his hat. So a huge win for Deshaun Watson. But on the other end, a massive massive loss, critical misstep, whatever you want to call it for the, for the prosecutor's office. They didn't need to do this. They could have pulled a Trevor Bauer and just said, hey, we don't have enough here because that's what it seems like at the end of the day. So Matt, let me ask you as a former prosecutor here, I want you to get into this, this concept of double jeopardy. We have a weird world now that Deshaun Watson was sent to the grand jury and they returned with nothing. They didn't return with felonies or a misdemeanor. I'm seeing this term tossed around double jeopardy a lot now. My understanding is that some of these crimes, right, he, he can't, cannot legally get them because this concept of double jeopardy. So explain this concept of double jeopardy. And I want you to walk us through what you would have done in this situation had you thought there was enough to get a misdemeanor. So if for in this case, for double jeopardy, now that they've done a grand jury, all state crimes that Deshaun Watson could have been charged with uh, in regards to those incidents with those victims, the sexual assaults, the indecent assaults, anything you could think of, those are done with because when you go to a grand jury and a true bill, a no true bill is returned, that's the end of it. However, double jeopardy doesn't attaches to federal crimes. So it's entirely possible that whatever the district in Houston is for the U.S. Attorney's Office looks into us and finds something different. He could potentially face criminal charges for that, but he cannot face any criminal charges in Harris County for crimes that he had committed for the incident in question that went in front of the grand jury. Those are done with. So if I, if I didn't think I had a felony, but I knew I had misdemeanors, I would have been like, okay, all right, let's charge the misdemeanors and go from there because those are still punishable by jail time. The victims still get hurt and they actually find out what actually the truth is. What happened with grand jury proceedings are secret. We don't actually know what was actually presented, what words, what questions were asked what testimony was given. And the Carrick County District Attorney's Office can now take their file and throw it in the trash and never speak about it again. They can go to the same talking points, grand jury proceedings are secret, we have no further comment at time. That statement is all you're ever going to hear out of anybody in that department who isn't speaking to some reporter on the condition of anonymity. So from this perspective, I would have charged the misdemeanors and gone from there, just be an information. I wouldn't bring it to a grand jury. I don't need to bring it to a grand jury. I have the victims. I have the corroborating evidence. I would have gone with that. But remember, I don't actually know specifically what they had. If they didn't have enough, like based on what was being said and what was provided to them, 
just decline the case. I right. get it. You you want to stand up for victims and be able to lay the blame at someone yeah, but else. The problem is you've done worse. You've you've caused more harm yeah. than good here because now you now you've lost the ability to charge the misdemeanors. If you wanted to, right? You could have just gone with misdemeanors. I, I again, you and I won't know this, and now we'll never know. But I think now this is this is where I want to take this next level of the conversation. There are we'll call them Twitter lawyers, right? You and I, Matt, have JDs. I can not in my background here, but I but I have a nice diploma. I, I think I see one maybe in maybe in your background over there. This is when we kind of work into dangerous territories on Twitter. People see the headline that says no criminal charges against Watson, and they see that in the context of all these different. You know, I, I don't want to call anybody out, but like sports reporters saying like, we're going to get clarity on Friday. We're going to get clarity on Friday and then no criminal charges. So then they're like, okay, I guess the floodgates are open for a trade. So I'm just going to read. I don't mean to call out anybody, but sometimes it's important enough where we should. So Adam Schefter has a tweet yesterday. It just went viral for the wrong reasons. I'm going to just read it as is. People can probably see why this was not a good tweet from, from Schefter. This is why Deshaun Watson, from the beginning, welcomed a police investigation. He felt he knew that the truth would come out. And today, a grand jury did not charge him on any of the criminal complaints. Hard stop. Adam Schefter has just painted a picture where the case is over. Everything's done. The truth is out. And they didn't charge him any of the criminal complaints. Adam Schefter is not a lawyer. You know, I respect Adam Schefter's hustle. He's a hard worker. But there are tweets like this that happen with him maybe every other month that he's got to apologize for, which he did here to his credit. But like, it's a bad tweet. It's a bad tweet because it mischaracterizes the legal system. So let's unpack this because Schefter was one of these people saying there'll be clarity on Friday. There'll be a ton of trades going. I count four categories where the things are not clear. And it's certainly things that could come out that still show that the truth is very murky at this point. I'm not necessarily for or against Deshaun Watson. I'm for due process. And if Deshaun Watson is fully cleared, you know, he's fully cleared. But it's too early to say that. So, Matt, here are the categories. Let's go into one by one. Let's go kind of rapid fire here. Federal charges, could they still result here? Yes. Remember, on double jeopardy, it only it precludes any and all charges associated with this state case. So any and all sexual assaults, indecent assaults associated with this incident. Those are now, they cannot be brought under double jeopardy thanks to the no bill being returned by the grand jury. However, it does not preclude the feds from potentially bringing criminal charges against them. They have a plethora of charges they could bring against them. Are they going to? Probably not. But we've definitely heard testimony about how he would basically lure allegations, these women to his place to perform massages, when in reality, based on the civil complaints that we said and reading the allegations in those, Deshaun Watson would force these women to perform oral sex on them, allegedly. Those allegations from that case, from the state case, those are no longer a thing. However, there is a potential that he could still face criminal charges in the federal court for that. The thinking being is that there are different charges. Perfect example is human trafficking. Is he going to? No, probably not. Are the feds going to probably go down this avenue? No. Why? The thinking being is that he wasn't charged in state court. They couldn't even get a grand jury indictment. They're probably not going to waste their time. So I'd say that is highly unlikely, but nonetheless possible. Let's go through the other ones and I'll help you through these. Just I want to make sure we hit them quick. This is the whole clarity element that you and I were jumping up and down like there is no clarity. There is no clarity by any means on Friday. So here's the other one. The giant elephant in the room, Matt, you're you're in Florida over there. The Miami Dolphins were very clear at last year's trade deadline that in order to trade for him, they want him to settle all of his civil cases. 
Civil cases do not go away. They don't. And there are going to be a number of teams that don't want to trade for him. I've been following news pretty closely. I think the New York Giants were one of the teams over here that said, we, do, we are not trading for Deshaun Watson. That could be because of these issues or because you have a quarterback in-house. But there are teams that have made their stance and don't want Deshaun Watson. Part of that certainly was the civil cases. I'm going to add one thing on the civil cases, and that's, you know, my background's more in civil law. Your background's more in criminal law. What I will say, there are reports of these 22 civil cases. Deshaun Watson, I think they, they had gotten close to settling a number of them at last year's trade deadline and maybe around the draft. But what I was reading is that there were four cases that were reportedly holdouts, that four women did not want to settle. Now, I'm reading Twitter. I, I see all the comments. I see all the replies. There's a lot of public sentiment right now that the criminal justice system got this one wrong and that the Adam Schefters of the world painted this the wrong way. So there's also a world where you go from having four settlement holdouts to five to six, and these people don't want to settle with Watson. Now it's not about the money. Now it's about holding Watson to the fire and putting him through depositions and putting him through a murky trial. So that's, I mean, I'll take that one. That's number two. I want to give this one to you. This is the one that I find to be interesting. I'm following the numbers here, right? 10 criminal complaints, 22 civil cases. Is there a world, Matt, where these 12 women that didn't file criminal complaints, that they could now turn around and file criminal complaints and start this process over again. Is that is that possible here? It is possible, but I say it's unlikely. I think that the district attorney, I think they only sent it to the people who actually filed criminal complaints. So it could the 12 other alleged victims from a civil suit. Sure, I think it's entirely possible that could happen. I do think it's unlikely because I'm sure that the district attorney's office is always looking for the strongest case. So if those 12 victims, alleged victims, had strong criminal cases, I would hope that they would have been front and center in front of the grand jury. You can tell me I'm wrong here, but wasn't it the women's choice, those 10 particular women, to file criminal complaints and the other 12, they chose not to? Or, I mean, you tell me, is the DA's office involved in, hey, you know, telling maybe one of those 12 women, hey, you have a good case. Maybe you'd want to file a criminal complaint. Does that happen? It usually doesn't. The district attorney usually has so many cases. I think Houston is like desperate for prosecutors. So I used to have a 300 caseload in Manatee County and Sarasota County. That's I can't even imagine what some of these other places like Houston, which I think is the fourth largest city in the country, has for criminal cases. So I don't think they're going to be searching for if the case doesn't come across their desk, they're not going to go searching for that. However, do I think it would have been smart to at least speak to those 12 other victims who didn't file criminal complaints to see if there were some striking similarities between the allegations? Remember, there were three incidents from the civil complaints with nearly identical facts. So I I don't know if that was presented to the grand jury, but I think that the district attorney could have sought them out, but I just don't think they did. Okay, so Matt, that brings up a good point. The DA's office, we don't know if they spoke to all 22 women. We don't know if they spoke to the women outside of the 10 that filed complaints. But on the other end of this, we know that the NFL was separately speaking to a lot of these women. We know that Tony Busby, the attorney, was facilitating this. So let's take you guys back to uh, you know high school math. There's the Venn diagram, right? The Venn diagram of people, right? There's one circle that the DA's office spoke to. And then there's the circle that the NFL spoke to. And then there's this cross-section of people in the middle. I'm not sure. I don't think both sides spoke to all 22 women. I don't think the DA's office did. I just, my, my kind of read on the situation. So now you're looking at the NFL. The NFL doesn't really have some beyond a reasonable doubt, burden of proof, preponderance of the evidence, burden of proof. It's something akin to credible evidence. So, you know, back in October, Roger Goodell issued a statement, which we talked about in the last podcast, that he didn't think at that point that they had enough to issue a suspension to Watson. So, you know, what has changed? I'm not sure. I don't know if they've been talking to more people. Watson didn't speak at his deposition, which we'll get into a little bit. But 
you know, certainly you can't really tell me today that Watson's going to avoid a suspension, especially when Ben Roethlisberger, again, I keep bringing it up, but declined, you know, the DA declined charges in his case. And then he was issued a six game suspension. Watson, right. Has 20 plus accusers. It just could be the optics. If you read what Goodell wrote to Roethlisberger back in the day, it was the optics. It was just the poor message it sent. So Matt, I know there are former prosecutors in the NFL's legal office that make these decisions. I'm going to give it to you. Let's put your, you know, your, your prosecutor hat back on here. Let's say the NFL called, which Matt, maybe they will at some point. And they say, Matt, we're going to hire you to be in our legal office. We need you to make a determination on Watson. What's your read on the situation? How, how would you handle this? Do you think there's enough to suspend the guy? I think there is. When you look at the precedent, Ezekiel Elliott was another one who had allegations of domestic violence. No criminal charges were brought. He got a six-game suspension. Ben Roethlisberger is another example. Got a six-game suspension associated. So I think that what you're seeing with, I think uh, Goodell is going to look at the precedent of it, the situation, and be like, okay, we see the allegations, civil suits, no criminal charges were brought like those other cases. But I still think there is sufficient evidence that you committed these acts, whether it's enough to get to a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, probably not, because we couldn't even get to a probable cause standard. I don't see it's potentially... He could, but I just don't see it. But also the other thing I want to talk about is this is the kind of the message we're sending. Let's look at the facts. We have Roethlisberger, Zeke Elliott. Those are six game suspensions for domestic violence and sexual assault. And if uh, Watson joins him, he'll probably get a similar result. And then you have Calvin Ridley, who bet $1,500 when he wasn't playing in a state where it was legal for all of two weeks, but he gets a year suspension. I don't know if uh, when when you hear the suspensions that we're doing just punishment for everybody, it's like w- it is proportional. These allegations in these civil complaints, and we'll find out whether or not what becomes of it, whether it goes to trial, whether it's settled, whether it's dismissed. But it's to me, it's kind of shocking that the NFL has put more credence on Ridley doing fifteen hundred dollars and getting a much stiffer punishment. I think Josh Gordon got like indefinite, and then it became a year for marijuana and stuff like that. But then with these allegations, I find much more disturbing Roethlisberger's, Zeke's, and Watson's. And I think that uh, when these teams are doing their analysis for trades, they're thinking, uh, at worst, he's probably looking at a six-game suspension, if anything. I'm with you. I mean, we're just telling it like it is. I think there's enough to suspend him. I think there was enough to put him on the exempt list. I've always said that. If the NFL doesn't want to, they are certainly privy to some information that we are not. But I don't think it would shock us either way at this point. If you got a suspension, if you didn't, I put two polls up, Matt, as uh, you know, I'm inclined to do. I want I want to see what people have to say. So which is not just us in a vacuum, you know, making these predictions right now. I put up a poll yesterday. Will Deshaun Watson receive a suspension from the NFL? Got a couple hundred responses, close to a thousand total. Fifty three percent say yes. So it's very close. And then I said, if so, how long will the suspension be? And I said over or under four and a half games. 56% say under. So, you know, that's people thinking that there's going to be something, but not, not that much. Okay, so let's move on. The other angle of this that, that we should hit that you and I, uh, you know, we're talking about again. Again, I don't, I don't want to be the one that keeps calling out the media because I, you know, kind of in a way, kind of get to mental We're all kind of members of the media at this point, even though we didn't really mean to. This started as just a fun podcast to talk about the law. Like, you know, we're, we're being relied on as media sources here. A lot of attention was paid yesterday to Deshaun Watson pleading the fifth at his depositions. Now, let's put it this way. Putting the fifth in, in certain contexts doesn't really mean anything. If it's a criminal case, there's you can't really, can't really do anything about it. Okay, you're pleading the fifth, fine. But in a civil case, 
actually there can be some type of adverse inference drawn, you know, to the extent that you do plead the fifth. So Matt, let me hand it to you. Maybe talk about the difference between criminal and civil pleading the fifth. So in a criminal case, you never have to be a witness against yourself. So if you're called to testify as a witness, remember, in a criminal case, the defendant never has to take the stand unless it's his choice. Like the prosecution cannot call the defendant to the stand. However, they can call witnesses to the stand and those individuals could plead the fifth. For example, in the Tyler Skaggs trial with Matt Harvey, where there are allegations that he was dealing drugs. And there was, I think during the defense's opening, that Matt Harvey was going to plead the fifth if he took the stand. The prosecution did the smart thing, give him immunity so there isn't this, he's pleading the fifth. Because if you do that as a witness at trial, and you are not the defendant, there's an inference that you have something to hide. It can't be held against them. And it can't be held against the defendant. But a jury, it's not going to be able to unring the bell that jury's like, okay, why are you pleading the fifth if you have nothing to hide? So, but in a civil case, there is an adverse inference for pleading the fifth. So it, with uh, Deshaun Watson actually in the deposition pleading the fifth, that can be used against him later. And I'm sure it will be. Do I think it's going to make that big of a difference that he's going to settle this for way more than it's probably worth? No. But I think it's going to, if it actually gets to a trial, and I'd be shocked that it did, because like 95% of all civil cases settle before trial. But doing that and a jury actually hearing that is like, okay, why is he pleading the fifth? And I think it will be even more substantial. I don't know if they're going to be able to get into this, but here's the angle I would approach if I were Tony Busby. Get the depositions of him after he wasn't criminally charged. Like, okay, you are not facing- Bring him back in. Right, bring him back in. You can't face any criminal charges in Harris County for all these incidents. You need to tell the truth. What Fifth Amendment right do you have right now? It's already been declined. You can't be charged. And And then what you do, Matt, is you play the press conference with Watson up yesterday saying how, you know, how relieved he is and blah, blah, like, you know, then you play that. He doesn't think he's going to get charged again. What is he? What is he pleading the fifth to? So that's, you know, I think Watson had to put finally speak. And I want to give credit to Harden's side. They've been protecting him from the media. You know, they, they have been. And I think Watson needed to say something yesterday. It was a big day. But, right, there's an expression. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. That would be used against him at, at any type of hearing like that. Oh, absolutely. Because they are a statement by a party opponent. And when you see that statement where it's just like, oh, thank for God. And the criminal case is behind me. And then on right. Friday, March 11th, and then on Monday, March 14th, you're still pleading the fifth. You're like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, 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 right, wait. Right. You, right. They've already said you're not going to be charged. What, what are you trying to protect against? Like, this is a civil case. You're not going to be criminally charged with it. But then it lends credence to this notion that it's okay. All right. Did this actually happen the way the prosecution said it did? And it just couldn't rise to probable cause or much less reasonable doubt, but it could still rise to the civil standard. And I think that will be very interesting. And if I'm Tony Busby, that's exactly what I do. I recall him for all the remainder of the cases that I did and see if he actually pleads the fifth. Because if he does, that's something that you could play the video, the press conference, and then you do the depositions. And the jury's like, okay, why is he doing that now? What are we missing? As we're transitioning to this last part, this the, the trade value conversation, I have a lot of people, uh, for, for whatever reason, um, and I, I can only follow Twitter at this point, Houston, people have always cared about the story. Carolina, I'm seeing a lot of reports that, that Carolina's looking at him. Seattle, you know, I've said this before on this show, and people can have different flavors. Like, you know, the world that we live in, you know, maybe you could get away with in, in years past, right? Having these really kind of messy charges and then, you know, getting a second chance in the NFL. 
be it Michael Vick, be it Roethlisberger, who's going to take a trip to Canton at some point in time. In the world of 2022, you know, we have a fundamental misunderstanding between the public and the legal system at this point. You have 22 women that are either liars or they're not, right? So something happened, right? Or truthfully, if you want to believe that 22 women just made this up, like I, I can't really convince you otherwise, but you have 22 women that are still out here banging the table on their civil cases going forward. So there is not clarity as far as I'm concerned as of today. And even when the cases settle, if they do, it's usually going to come with the optics that he accepted some type of fault for this. Let's take us to the NFL side. There's a number of teams that are looking for quarterbacks today. You know, Seattle Seahawks just traded Russell Wilson. They're in the market, right? Carolina is in the market. Tampa Bay lost Brady. They're in the market. The Steelers are in the market. You can keep going round and around. You can name a number of teams that are in the market for quarterback. I'm just getting the sense that a trade is inevitable here. I just don't think me as a GM of a team, and let's let's go through the mind of a GM. Some of these GMs in the league are lawyers. Howie Roseman's a GM uh, of the Eagles. He's an alum of, of Fordham Law School. He spoke at the symposium when I was a student there back in the day. Worked his whole life through the front office, went to law school. He's now got to the top of an organization. And I know of all teams, I know Howie Roseman, that's been publicly reported, has contacted Rusty Harden about Deshaun Watson. He, he's asked him about the case. That's So the Eagles are doing their due diligence, you know, which they're allowed to do. If you swing and miss on this trade and the team doesn't win with Watson team, you know, you're certainly going to have people protesting whatever team he goes to. I'm not ready to make that trade. I'm not, I don't, I don't care what the price is. I've worked my whole career to get to this point. Like a, I don't, I don't necessarily think that winning is more important than sending the right message for my organization, but B, if I do think winning is more important and if I'm wrong, I don't win. I'm out of a job. And I probably have this mark on my career that I'm the guy that traded for Deshaun Watson that, you know, optically thought winning was more important than the optics. So I'll give it to you, Matt. Let me let me hear uh, your thought process on this. Well, the way I look at it and what, the way I've always done is I've read many people, especially in the media, didn't actually read the complaints and what the actual allegations were, because if they had, they would either have to say, yeah, we didn't find that credible or we didn't actually see it, both of which demand a explanation. So someone like the Carolina Panthers, I think that's like the strongest team that I'm feeling is going to push forward. I think they, and this is just me. I'm not, uh, this is just my thinking. Three first round picks, Christian McCaffrey and a couple other things. Because remember, the market was set by Russell Wilson with his two first round picks and like four players, which was astonishing. So whatever the compensation for Watson would be, would have to exceed that from different teams obviously now the Seahawks have all the picks they could ever want by getting them from the Broncos but for me at seeing the allegations I'm not trading for him even if it's a seven round pick I don't care that the grand jury declined to indict him for these charges I still will see what's in those allegations and unless 22 women like you said made him up and that's possible I find it highly unlikely and we're living a different age where it's like, how is the team going to be like happy International Women's Month with a picture of Deshaun Watson in the tweet? And people are like, OK, that's a little tone deaf. And that was the problem with the Schefter tweet when I I think I called you up and I was like, did you see this? Like, this is this is ridiculous. It sounds like it's something that Rusty Harden told Adam Schefter directly to say. Verbatim. Which probably would have Verbatim. Verbatim. And for me, I'm like, OK, if he just said per his attorney, Rusty Harden like reading a statement, I think that's fine. But he sounded like a mouthpiece for them. And what I've seen constantly throughout this process is that the criminal charges were nothing. It was like, 
Uh, no, the criminal investigation is the only reason he hasn't been traded. If I'm the Texans, I give it a few days, find out what's the best everybody can do, and then I offload him for everything I can. And that's what the Houston is. Nick Castillo is probably one of the happiest people on the planet right now because if he was charged, he couldn't get a ham sandwich for him. But now with this, he'll be able to call up every QB team because everybody knows you don't have at least a game-managing quarterback in the NFL. You are not winning a championship. And even if you have a quarterback like Jimmy Garoppolo, there's still no guarantee. The San Francisco 49ers, had they not wasted all their draft capital on Trey Lance, would absolutely be like, hey, give us Deshaun Watson. He's the missing piece we need to actually win a Super Bowl because Jimmy G can't for us. But for me, if I'm a GM and I have the background I do and reading the civil complaints, I'm not, I don't want him no matter what. I don't care if people around the league. It's like, oh, well, this is about winning. David Tapper, who is from the Panthers, I don't know if it sends the right message. The previous owner had racial allegations of misconduct in that situation. And what are you going to do? Okay, you're going to bring in a guy to be your quarterback and your franchise player who you're going to put on your tickets on your Twitter page, everywhere, the face of your franchise, who has sexual misconduct allegations. And not like one or two, where 22 of them. And it's like you're going to turn around and say, all those women are lying. Deshaun Watson is innocent. He didn't do anything. Because what's going to happen is likely it's going to end in a settlement. And these women are going to be asked to sign non-disclosure agreements, which truthfully, if I were Tony Busby, I'd be like, no. Our strongest leverage is taking this to trial and for the world to find out for themselves who Deshaun Watson really is. Okay, so as we're getting to wrap, we're obviously going to monitor this. Let's see if Goodell opts to punish Watson. You know that Rusty Harden's going to put up a fight about it because of this result. Same goes. The other story we're monitoring is Trevor Bauer, who similarly won in court. And, you know, we're going to see if they, they want to issue some type of suspension. Okay, so before we put this episode in the books, I want to remind our listeners, there are topics, right? Sometimes we have a lot of fun on the show, but other times they're really serious topics. And our job on Conic Detrimental is to fill the gap, fill the gap left by traditional media. You know, we had a lot of Twitter lawyers. So that's why we bring the real lawyers on to talk about it. Speaking of real lawyers and soon to be lawyers, this, this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company in the country. As you are waiting between graduation and studying for the bar, right, you need to make a decision about which bar company you're going to take. So Themis Bar Review helps fill the gap between those two worlds. You know, Matt, as we move to put this episode in the books, I had a nice experience on Friday. I was in person for the first time, really, since really the pandemic started at a uh, competition and a symposium at Fordham Law School. So, you know, I know it was so funny. I see the numbers of the people that listen to the podcast. And obviously, you know, we have our different social feeds. I had so many people come up and say, what's going to happen to Deshaun Watson? What's going to happen to Deshaun Watson case? This was Friday. So if anything, right, it's teaching our, our young lawyers of the intricacies between criminal and civil cases. We've always said for years, you know, the OJ Simpson case is always my go-to to explain the difference between civil and criminal. But we're seeing it play out right now, the difference between civil and criminal with Watson. So, you know, it's obviously a heavy topic, but I once upon a time was a wide-eyed sports loving 1L and I learned to love the law through sports. And that's what I think we bring to our listeners. Matt, tell everybody, uh, you know, you're starting up your law practice in Florida. I've seen you, you're on local news, you're on law and crime. I see a lot of marketing efforts on your front. Uh, I don't know. You have, you have the floor, Matt. Tell me, tell me what it's like opening up your own practice. I think our listeners would like to hear that. So for me, it is very exciting because I wake up every day and I get to be able to mold my practice how I see fit. I have worked at the district attorney's office. I worked in-house for a nursing home company and I worked at a big law firm. 
but I always knew that I was eventually going to end up owning my own law firm, which I did back in October. I opened it, Sympanic Law PA, doing criminal defense and personal injury. And for me, what you find out is when you actually own your own law firm, practicing the law is only one part of it. Being the business owner is the other half of it. So for every time I'm in court representing a client or doing a motion, I'm also creating a business plan, talking with potential clients about or potential chiropractors for a personal injury case. They want to refer something to me. I refer something to them. Or I'm appearing on television networks and explaining how the laws actually apply. Perfect example, I was just on Long Cry for the Curtis Reeves trial, and that was a long case, and I usually do two hours every week. And by doing that, I'm explaining how the actual law is applied in certain parts of the country, like the standard ground law was big. So for me, to be able to actually mold my practice how I want to and actually practice the way I want to, because if I was working somewhere else for somebody else, I probably wouldn't be able to go on conduct detrimental or go on long crime or other things because they would be like, hey, you're a member of our law firm. You, we hold you out to be a member of us and we don't really agree with what you have to say with this issue. When you own your own law firm, you're building your brand for yourself. And when you appear somewhere, you're speaking on behalf of you. You get to do things how you see fit. And whatever you want to do, if you want to open your own law firm, the best advice I can give you, write down on a piece of paper why you're opening it. Because if you don't know the reason why, if it's just a, oh, well, I didn't want to work for somebody else or something else, I don't know if you're going to be able to sustain that. Write it out. And if in one sentence, like, are you trying to provide low-cost criminal representation to defendants? Are you providing legal services to immigrants? Whatever it is, find out your reason for opening your law firm and then execute it. I am at a firm, largish firm, that allows me to do this. It is very rare. That's how I ended up here. I was at a firm and nothing bad against them, but it didn't necessarily love that I was doing all the different media and then certain things I couldn't talk about, which, you know, going to the firm I'm at now, Garagos and Garagos, my boss, Mark, has done this for a living and he's helped used it to build business. So, Matt, I love what you're doing on Law and Crime, local shows, and that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying to go on different media to build uh, my brand and, and help build you know, my business and build context that way and build in my clients this way. What we do, kind of detrimental is free. I go on all these shows shockingly for free. I just enjoy doing it. And, but if it spreads my name and helps bring my business and case to the firm, you know, that's, that's gravy, but I, I love doing it. And my boss is certainly okay. You know, expanding the, the uh, you know, the name brand of Garagos and Garagos. Okay. That'll do it. We want to give you guys all advice as you're listening to this, you know, certainly this tried to give you anything and everything relating to Deshaun Watson. So, you know, that's our goal here. We just try to make everybody smarter. We're not trying to be uh, Nostradamus and, and predict exactly what's going to happen. We don't know certain things, but we just try to tell you, you know, don't don't buy everything you're hearing, right? Buy the rumors, sell the news. Like, uh, there is no clarity today. We've just told you four things that, that we don't really know yet and nobody can predict. And if anybody tells you there was 100% clarity, they're just not telling you the truth. We don't know what'll happen. We just know that there's still some clarity here. Okay, let us put this episode in the books. I am Dan Lust. I'm at Sports of Lust. Matt is at Timpanic Law. Wallach is at Wallach Legal, the show at Con Detrimental. We had a lot of lovely articles this week. One article in particular I wanted to shout out, Ben Schrader, the Chicago Sports Law Bar Association president. Ben wrote about Chelsea's owners, his assets getting frozen so he can't sell the team. 
So we cover anything and everything on Connect Detrimental. You have a, a story that that you think is is worthy of coverage. Certainly, had a lot of lockout coverage. We'll probably address the lockout next week. But yeah, we love our contributors, and uh, I know at Fordham I had a ton of one L's. What do I do? What kind of interview do I need to get involved in Conduct the Trantho? I'm like, want to know your interview? Telling me that you just want to get involved. That's it. You don't need to do anything else. And we were certainly happy to hook you up. For Matt, myself, Dan, the Conduct Detrimental family, we'll see everyone next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. <laughs> <laughs>